0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corinne, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information. Visit
2: corin.com. It's the final stretch of 2022, and HRN needs your help. Become an HRN member with a donation of any amount at heritageradionetwork.org/slash/donate.
1: Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Takiko Tema, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen, and isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is, is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. My guest today is Masud Kelsey, who has a Japanese food and restaurant blog on Instagram under Tokyo Manhattan. His post not only describe restaurants, uh, he has visited, but also include many other elements behind the dishes, such as history, culture, and cooking methods. He joined us on episodes... 125, uh, 125, 136, 152, and 186, and shared his favorite Japanese chefs and restaurants in the world. And today's topic is the best Japanese restaurants in the world in 2022. The popularity of Japanese food remains high globally, and so is the reputation of Japanese chefs working abroad. And Masu has visited many cities in the world and discovered great restaurants during the year. So we will discuss all of them, also, since this is the end of the year episode, we will demystify the Japanese New Year rituals, which is a huge deal in Japan. But before we begin, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Masu Gelsi. Hello, Masoud. welcome back to Japanese.
3: Akiko San, thanks for having me back. Great to be on the show again. Okay so
1: so first of all for our listeners who have not listened to our previous conversations, please tell us your super unique background.
3: Yeah, so my name is Masood. My heritage is Afghan. Uh, I'm, I guess, technically from Afghanistan. I've never been there. I was born and raised in Tokyo, Japan. My dad was the ambassador of Afghanistan in Japan when the Soviets invaded in the 70s. So he, for obvious reasons, sought political asylum in Japan, luckily found a job at a university as a professor. And that's how I was born and raised in Japan. I spent 28 years of my life there, and I carry a Japanese passport. So...
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah surprising you're a super tall individual you don't look like anything related to japan but then <laughs> it's always a surprise i see people like what <laughs> you speak um, perfect japanese of course you grew up in japan so um all right so uh before we dive into japanese restaurants of the year let's talk about special japanese food around the new year so how important is the new year for japanese people
3: Yes. So as you may know, obviously, Akiko-san, New Year's is a time of a lot of, you know, cultural superstitions and rituals called uh, fubutsu-shi. Um, And as a result, um, in Japan, symbolism is very important. Um, And New Year's is one of those times when it's the changing of the year. Um, And as a result, um, there are a lot of, um, I guess, rituals that are practiced during um, what's known as Oshogatsu or New Year's. Uh, There are specific decorations, um, traditional events, food that's eaten. People visit shrines. They send what's called nengajos. They, these are uh, postcards to their loved ones, and it has a lottery in it. Uh, people make mochi during this time. They also receive what's called otoshidama, so, uh, an allowance that kids, that is, they re- receive otoshidama. Uh, there's also the bell ringing at a temple so both the Shinto religion and the Buddhist religion are involved in um, Oshogatsu and it's just a festive time and pretty much on the 1st, 2nd and 3rd of January the city pretty much shuts down
1: Mm, Right, so it's almost a combination of um, Thanksgiving and Christmas I would say
3: Exactly, yeah (laughs) And to add to that it's interesting to note that uh, Beethoven's Symphony 9 is very popular during uh, Christmas and New Year's. And I think uh, s- uh, there were some 50-some performances in Japan last year, two years ago. So that's also something that's uh, that's uh, done during New Year's.
1: Mm, right. Well, obviously, it's not a part of Japanese classic New Year, but it's really fun. <laughs> something happens yeah. and then it becomes a ritual. So that's pretty open-minded, I think. Right. So um, yeah, so one let's talk about the specific foods that people eat around the New Year. So one of the most symbolic foods around the New Year is a toshikoshi soba. So what is it, and why do people, why do people eat
3: it? Yeah, so toshikoshi soba is called year is is basically the literal translation is year crossing soba. It's consumed during what's called omisoka, which is New Year's Eve. Um, and again, it's a, uh, it's a Japanese seasonal cultural superstitious ritual, and this was established during pretty pretty much the Edo period. Um, that's when um, soba also took off. Soba is also part of what's called Edo no Sami, the three flavors of Edo, which includes soba, sushi, and tempura. Um, And the reason why people eat soba during New Year's Eve is because it it symbolizes many things. Um, One, it's letting go of hardships of the past year um, and welcoming the year ahead with a clean slate. And that's because uh, soba is something that is easy to cut. So it's the idea of eating soba means you're cutting all the misfortunes of the past year. Also, long and thin soba noodles, um, they represent longevity. So, you know, it's it's good ritual to eat something that represents longevity. Also, thirdly, buckwheat is something that's healthy um, and a good practice to start the year on a on a fresh note. And finally, um, goldsmiths actually they use buckwheat flour when collecting gold powder, so they symbolize good fortune. So it's multi-layered. There's there's various reasons, um, and it's estimated I think in uh, I think like five six years ago they ran a survey in Japan, and approximately 60% of Japanese population eat soba during New Year's Eve. Akiko-san, do you eat soba during New Year's Eve?
1: Um. Yeah, whenever I spend time with my um, parents, um, yeah, we would, but in New York, I'd be lazy. But um, it's really, um, whenever I eat it, I feel good. Because soba and buckwheat makes you feel so good, like you mentioned, and it's healthy. So yeah, I try to eat it, but um, yeah, not in New York. I should. Um, I know we can get some good soba
3: in New York too. You can even make it at home. It doesn't have to be outside.
1: (laughs) Do you make one for yourself?
3: <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I actually eat soba uh, New Year's Eve. It's just a tradition that has stuck with me for quite a while. And I guess I also fall um, in, into the superstition and um, I end up eating it. just gives me kind of a sense of satisfaction. And, you know, that's, that's what traditions are for.
1: Mm. So do you get noodles somewhere and uh, cook at home?
3: If I'm in New York, which um, rarely I am, um, I usually go eat soba outside, and in New York, there are a lot of supermarkets where you can buy Japanese soba, um, so it's easy to make at home. Plus, it's not a complicated dish. It's basically boiling buckwheat noodles, um, and and it comes with uh, the the dipping sauce, the tsuyu, um, and also with uh, so uh, scallions, um, and wasabi. Uh, but otherwise, um, Sobayan is as an example in the East Village, where I think um, Akiko-san, you and I have uh, had a meal together there. Uh, that's a soba-centric uh, restaurant, and I'm sure they have it. And if you call around um, a few restaurants, either... Um, they, they, You can take out soba or you can go dine in and have soba uh, at the restaurant. And I know a new tempura place, which opened up, I uh, forgot the name off the top of my head, in Flatiron. Um, it, it's uh, the, the one in Tokyo, which is some 300 years old. Um, they also serve soba there too. Mm, right.
1: I think uh, listeners, if they look up, um, you know, the yeah, and Toshikoshi Soba, uh, I think locally, they may be able to find uh, Japanese restaurants serving soba because it's such a big deal for Japanese yes. restaurants, right? And uh, so the, uh, the highlight, though, of the Japanese New Year is Osechi, which is eaten uh, the first three days of the year. And uh, so what is it and how do people enjoy it?
3: Yeah, so um, it's so New Year's food, and this is after um, New Year's Eve, and by the way, it's considered bad luck to eat soba um, after New Year's, immediately after New Year's, and uh, you're not supposed to leave any soba behind. Well, portions are small, so usually it's not a problem, but once the sun rises, and by the way, going to watch the sunrise, especially at Mount Fuji is also another, I guess, tradi- uh, a tradi- well, not necessarily, sorry, not Mount Fuji because that's cold, but generally speaking, watching the first. Sunrise is called Hatsumode, um, is also a popular um, New Year's activity. But having said that, on the food side of the equation, on the first, second, and third, usually uh, people eat what's known as Osechi Ryori, and this is food basically that doesn't need refrigerations, refrigeration, uh, because back you know a couple hundred years ago, refrigerators didn't exist, um, so everything's either cured, pickled, or uh, pre-cooked and, and preserved um and and the reason is again there were no refrigerators and stores have been closed historically during this period so that's why people eat um osechi and osechi is is a it's it's a world that's very deep with a lot of uh, cultural symbolism it began in approximately the 19th, 9th century during the heian period um so it has a very long historical tradition um basically it's food served in boxes called jubako they're stacked. Um, they're usually two to three layers and they're extremely colorful and, uh, very uh, appealing to, to the eyes. Um, and every single ingredient has a special meaning and it has a lot of ingredients in it actually. Um, and, and the soup component, which I guess we can talk about later is called ozoni. And that's also something that's consumed during, uh, new years, uh, during new years, uh, with, osechi cuisine Mm. and the quiz osechi has really evolved over the last couple hundred years Um, every region has its own variety its own ingredient so there's no specific um, osechi dish uh, but there are some commonalities some symbols um, that everyone kind of adheres to and uh, it's evolved to the point where you can even find osechi at their local 7-eleven in japan
1: Mm, right, yeah. By the way, the 711 one says it's not bad at all. It's just <laughs> the convenience store in Japan is so, such a high level, but yeah. So we um, yeah, have to really um, stress that how beautiful the boxes are. It's not just um, casual plastic boxes. Usually it's lacquerware or something very um, beautiful, shiny. And what you have inside is also colorful, like five colors. Uh, it's a basic healthy color of gomi, goshoku, goho that keeps you healthy, the colorful food keeps you balanced and healthy. And uh, yeah, like for example, uh, kuro mame uh, has a meaning of mame means uh, industrious. So if you eat it, you're going to work hard throughout the year. And uh, Kazunoko is the, the, the fish fishbowl well, and uh, it's kind of like make you fertile and prosperous. All those things, there's a meaning of it. Um, yeah and it's very fulfilling. you don't and the housewives do not have to cook for the first three days, so it's a treat for them too. So anyway, so what's your favorite item uh, or items in sachet box?
3: Yeah, I like um, tai, which I guess would be uh, sea bream. And tai is, again, symbolism, and it's a play on words. Um, thai in Japanese means blessed, festive, something along those lines. So whenever it, it's, there's a cost for celebration, celebration people eat tai. So the Thai is usually very good, as obviously seafood is always great in Japan. Uh, the shrimps are spectacular. I mean, Japan has a very long coast um, and across its various... Um, coastline um there's different types of shrimp um and the whole idea behind shrimp and prawns is that the long antennas symbolize longevity um so it it is it again symbolizes uh, longevity. So that's why it's e- eaten. The ozoni, which is the soup, is also one of my favorite. It's usually a clear broth soup. Uh, there's mochi. Mochi also has its symbolic meanings. And as you mentioned, kudomame black beans. Uh, these are very delicious too. It's uh, marinated um, in advance and, and has a very sweet flavor.
1: Mm, right. So usually, um, well, the osechi box, um, they're, you know, it's like along with ozoni, that's the soup. They eat together and also there's otoso, that's um, the herbal medicinal uh, sake. And even when you're little, you have a sip of it for long life health for the year. So, yeah, so and all those rituals in um, Japanese New Year, is about cleansing your last years, whatever you did, bad things. (laughs) You clean clean up, they literally clean the whole house and then start the fresh new year. So unlike um, Western cultures, there's no champagne hangover. You go to the shrine, (laughs) you basically start clean. So there's no, um, you know, omelet, hangover cleansing in the first of the new year. So that's a huge cultural difference. Um, But of course, from the second, I'm sure people get drunk (laughs) with lots of sake.
3: That's right.
1: Right. All right. So, um, yeah, so let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll dive into the best restaurants Masud visited in 2022. So please stay with us.
2: It's the final stretch of 2022, and HRN needs your help. Our goal for the Winter Membership Drive is to raise $30,000. Become an HRN member with a donation of any amount at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Through creative educational reporting, storytelling, and live events, HRN delivers thought-provoking exchanges about the real issues affecting our global food system. Your donation also supports our internship program, an essential part of HRN's work that educates the next generation of journalists. Donate at the $90 level before December 31st, and you'll receive a limited release HRN t-shirt designed exclusively for HRN members by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member at any level, you'll be the first to know about special events and get news updates created only for Food Radio Insiders. Help us meet our end-of-year fundraising goal with your tax-deductible donation. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and become a member today.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Koin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back, you're listening to Japan it's on HRN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aki Koteyama, and my guest today is Masud Kazi, uh, who has a Japanese food and restaurant blog on Instagram under Tokyo Math. So, let's talk about the notable restaurants in 2022 based on your visits. So, you traveled around the world for work and for pleasure, yes? And so, what cities did you visit in 2022?
3: Yes yeah, so I oftentimes go back to um actually the same countries uh generally speaking Spain France Italy and Japan um and I usually uh dine in you know various different areas and regions and try to experience the local cuisine but in 2022 I did uh, about 11 days in Paris Um, I also was in Japan for um, 12, 13 days. I was in Tokyo, Hokkaido, and Kanazawa. And finally, I was in Spain in October. Um, I did Madrid, Valencia, and also Galicia, which is the northwestern area, autonomous area of um, Spain. And they actually compete when it comes to seafood with Japan, and they have some of the best seafood in the world there also.
1: Mm. Right. So um so I got to list in advance so that we can uh, f- put everything in time. So let's start with the restaurants in Kanazawa, Japan. So first of all, uh, describe Kanazawa. What kind of um city is Kanazawa? What what is special about it?
3: Mm. So Kanazawa is um, labeled, oftentimes labeled, as Little Kyoto. Uh, The locals obviously don't like it because they're proud of their own heritage. Uh, It historically has been a very prosperous um, city. It also houses one of the top three Japanese gardens. It's just a beautiful garden. The castle is just spectacular. It's extremely lush. It sits on the uh, the Sea of Japan, on the coast in the Hokuriku region. Um, and it's a gastronomic and sake heaven. Um, and, and the area is blessed with a lot of, uh, a lot of things. It, it, it's uh, the Sea of Japan, so it has the ocean. Uh, it has the Japanese Alps, the mountains. It gets abundant rainfall, Um, so as a result, it's very lush. Japan in general is very lush, but Kanazawa is extra lush. Like As soon as you fly over Kanazawa, you realize how green it is and if you drive around. And it has a lot of pristine rivers, obviously because of the Alps and the rivers draining into the Sea of Japan. This makes for rich pastures, um, great fishing. Um, and a lot of fertile rice fields, so some of the best rice comes from not necessarily Kanazawa, but the Hokuriku region. Niigata usually has uh, considered to have some of the best Japanese rice. Um, also, the vegetables are spectacular. What's known as kaga vegetables come also from Ishikawa prefecture, um, and also from Noto Peninsula. Um, that's the peninsula north of Kanazawa. So, uh, and and on top of that, the uh, kan- Kanazawa area has great meat. Um, they have uh, Noto-gyu, so Noto beef, and also Hida-gyu, so Hida beef, which comes from Gifu Prefecture. So as you can see, they great vegetables, great seafood, and great meat. It's it's a gastronomic heaven, and pretty much all of Japan flocks to Kanazawa in order to eat.
1: Mm, and also uh, historically, um, there's a gold mine, so Kanazawa became a very rich city. And uh, you can see if you can walk around the town, actually, in a day, which I did, um, you see all those amazing, um, you know, buildings and former um, rich people's houses, all those things. And <laughs> funny thing is you see a lot of gold on food. Yes. Like even this ice cream, I <laughs> top with gold. So yeah, um, yeah, right. it's, <laughs> it's a very, uh, you can see how historically the city has been rich and you can see the culture, rich culture based on it. Um, yeah, so, um, so let's talk about uh, notable restaurants in Kanazawa. And you give me three. So they, they are Sushi Kawaramachi, Hajime, Sushi Kawaramachi, Hajime, and Kappo Hamacho,
3: and Higashiyama Wako. So go ahead. Let me first preface to say that it's, it's, it's extremely difficult to pick restaurants in Kanazawa. There's a lot of very good restaurants. It's highly competitive. Um, so um, your restaurant selection in um, Kanazawa shouldn't be confined just to these three. These are the ones that I happened to go to. It was recommended by me, uh, so I ended up going. And just before I start talking about these restaurants, let me kind of discuss why seafood, in particular seafood, is, is spectacular in the Kanazawa region. Um, first of all, the uh, as mentioned earlier, the area receives abundant rainfall and the, the two rivers flowing into the Japanese Alps, uh, they provide for a broad range of uh, rich nutrients for life in the sea. And when you look at the Sea of Japan, um, there's the cold water Lehman Current uh, flowing from the north and the Tsushima Current uh, bringing warm water from the south. So this makes for a very biodiverse environment. And then you also have the Yamato Bank, which is an underwater mountain range, which provides for organic sediment sediment, um, from the surface layer, basically enriching uh, marine life. Um, So the city is, again, situated along the Sea of Japan, where fish swim up and down the nutrient-rich warm and cold waters. Uh, It's also the halfway point on the coast for a convenient location to source from both northern in the southern sea of Japan. And as mentioned earlier, it's very close to Noto Peninsula, which has um, shallow and deep waters, which is conducive for biodiversity. So it's it's the ideal place um, for, for marine life. So that's why food is extremely good in Kanazawa.
1: So how about the kawaramachi, sushi kawaramachi, Hajime?
3: Yeah, so I had the opportunity to visit three restaurants in Kanazawa. Well, actually more, but three that I highlighted. First of all, Kawaramachi Hajime. Uh, it's run by a couple in the down uh, in the new downtown district of Kanazawa. Very old school sushi parlor. Uh, the sushi chef, he's an older gentleman, I think in, in his maybe late 50s. Um, and it's basically um, all the ingredients that he uses is from um, the Hokuriku region. And some of the dishes I had there, were quite unique, um, if I may recall, um, and they're also paired with uh, the local sake, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Ishikawa, Toyama, and the Hokuriku region, Niigata, offers a lot of great sake, so you can basically uh, have a feast with just the local uh, ingredients there. But going back to Hajime, it's run by um, Shinji Hamamoto, the chef, uh, and some of the spectacular dishes I had there was the Hokoku Akaebi, uh, or the Hokoku red shrimp, Amaebi. <laughs> and uh, whenever they spawn, they actually, the roe um, is, is, they produce a vivid blue roe, uh, which contrasts beautifully with the red, clear, and translucent shrimp. Um, and the, uh, this period is rather short, uh, the, the peak season. So I had the opportunity to be able to uh, flavor this. So that's one thing that I had, which was spectacular. Also, too, there's a special shellfish. I forgot the name that comes from the Noto Peninsula, that when the emperor would come to Kanazawa, he would always ask for seconds. And he specifically told me the story that the emperor, because they were supposed to be very humble, they're not, um, they're, they're, the custom of asking for seconds is not, is, is frowned upon in the Japanese imperial family. But it was so good that he asks for seconds. So that's kind of a notable story around um, their their shellfish there. Mm. And finally, the whole Sea of Japan area, it's very well known for their, um, uh, the the black-throat sea perch or nodoguro, uh, which is kind of distinctively from that area of of Japan. Very buttery, um, expensive fish, actually. Very rich, um, and it's, it's a white fish. So those are some of the highlights of Kawaramachi Hajime.
1: Mm, right. Okay. So how about kappo
3: hamacho? So actually, this was recommended uh, to me by um, uh, Chef Shinji Hamamoto of, of Hajime. Uh, they, it's uh, Hamacho is a kappo restaurant. Kappo means everything is prepared in front of you. So a different style of Japanese cuisine. Uh, basically, the, the chef, uh, Kazutoshi Ishikami-san, uh, he has been uh, running this restaurant for 48 years. So it's an institution in the Kanazawa area. When you walk in, it's very old school. And when you leave, everyone comes out. They bow until the end, until you basically leave. And they feature hokuriku cuisine. So um, one of the kind of commonalities you see in uh, Kanazawa is usually uh, all these different ingredients that are local to Kanazawa they are prepared in various different ways at, at these different restaurants so Hamacho was another take on hukuriku cuisine uh the cuisine of the area um using very similar ingredients as Hajime and other restaurants uh but in in a couple setting so everything's prepared in front of you and it's very old school as the chef has been trained in Kyoto in kaiseki cuisine mm,
1: right so kappo is a good word to know because um, I mean there is another one called lyote. Lyote is more formal and Kapo is more kind of um, chef in talking to you what do you like and more casual but still very authentic. So okay so that's Kapo Hamacho and uh, what about Higashiyama Wakon?
3: Higashiyama Wakon is located in uh, the Higashichaya district which is as mentioned earlier kind of the uh, old uh, Kyoto, or uh, sorry, mini Kyoto of Kanazawa. It's an extremely charming place uh, with various tea houses and uh, geisha historically used to entertain their clients there. So it has a very old school feel. And you walk in one of the small alleys, and in the back is a restaurant called Higashiyama Wakon. Uh, it's modern, uh, modern uh, kaiseki restaurant. It's helmed by chef Tomokazu Imai. Rather. Uh, young chef. And again, it's hukuriku cuisine, all prepared in a very modern fashion. Uh, Approximately, I think it was around 16 to 18 course meals. Um, And this is also paired with a lot of local sake. Um, So it's it's very, I would say, um, foreigner friendly, um, non-Japanese friendly in a sense that they mix various new styles and new ingredients with the local. So it's a fusion of kind of modern and old school uh, Japanese cuisine
1: mm right and I think it's uh there is an inn right it's a part of a uh, uh, kind of they say Auberge, um kind of like a hotel boutique hotel yes. right
3: did you stay there too? no actually unfortunately did not stay there
1: right Well sounds like I saw uh, all the pictures and I, I wish I could stay there so yeah,
3: that's nice
1: right? and you also went to Paris. And they say that if you visit Mission star restaurant, you always find at least one Japanese cook in Paris. And yeah, the Japanese cooks have a good reputation in Paris as they are patiently working uh, very hard like sushi chefs in training. So um, and you visited two restaurants where Japanese chefs cook French food. So they are AT and uh, La Seine Telem. So, tell us what the concept of the
3: restaurant, uh, who is a chef, and uh, what was the most impressive element of the restaurant to you? Of course. Let me preface this to, with, with uh, I actually visited many um, restaurants, Japanese chefs cooking French, but it was very difficult to uh, pick. But I ended up picking two that I'm featuring currently. Um, there's also a book in Paris called uh, 30 uh, Japanese Chefs Cook French. Um, there are a lot of Japanese chefs in, in France, uh, especially Paris, um, and, and, you know, they've, they've elevated themselves as several of them have uh, Michelin star rest, uh, Michelin stars, uh, the two that I'll be talking about, uh, restaurant AT and also La Santa alem they both have Michelin stars each. Um, and beginning with, um, restaurant AT, this is a very uh, popular restaurant has kind of a cult following. If you go on Instagram, I think they have something close to 200,000 followers, Uh, It's an extremely unique restaurant. Um, And and the reason being, uh, the the shokunin, the master craftsman, Atsushi Tanaka, he's basically conquered various corners of European gastronomy. It's very impressive. The renowned French chef uh, Pierre Gagner, he describes Tanaka as, Chef Tanaka, as the Picasso of gastronomy. And each dish that comes out is a composition, basically, uh, rendering his style very unique, um, and difficult to categorize, uh, winning him many awards. He's worked in a number of, uh, restaurants, coveted restaurants across Europe. Um, some of the top Michelin stars in Spain, Scandinavia, and, and also Paris. So it's really hard to describe again, what kind of cuisine it is. It's, you have to go experience it. It's very unique. And he brings his Japanese sensibility, the idea of hardworking creativity, um, all on the plate. Um, so that's um, uh, Restaurant AT. Uh, La Seine um is also another favorite of mine. Um, I visit pretty much every time I'm in Paris. It's more traditional French cuisine with a modern twist and Japanese sensibilities included. Uh, the chef is uh, Yoshitaka Takayanagi. He uh, has been in Paris for quite some time. He's from Shizuoka. And uh, he, again, brings elements of Japan into his dishes uh, a lot of local Japanese ingredients and cooking methods that are fused together with French cooking methods and French ingredients. Um, he uses, you know, th- techniques and ingredients from both, and and I wouldn't call it fusion, but but brings kind of a heightened French cuisine, um, and that has enabled him to um, win a uh, Michelin star. Mm. So again, fantastic cuisine located right by uh, Char de Gol Étoile. Um, and highly recommend uh, people to pay a visit there.
1: Mm, right, um, and I heard that he was trained under Kim Martin, Yannick Renou, and others. Like it's really he must be really good. So,
3: okay, Very impressive.
1: yeah. And then I also went to uh, Valencia in Spain and dined at Toshi, uh, another Michelin star restaurant. So tell us about that.
3: Yeah, so um, I, would, I was planning my Spain trip and I came across a, I think it's 10 counters, 10 seat counter restaurant in Valencia of all places, run by a Japanese chef. And I was very excited. I'm like, done, I'm going there. I typically don't eat Japanese food outside of um, Japan and New York when I'm traveling. So when I go to Europe, I don't typically eat Japanese food, but I do enjoy Japanese chefs um, preparing the local cuisine. So again, he runs a 10-seat counter uh, original tasting menu in Valencia. His sous-chef is trained in French cuisine. He's Spanish. Um, The chef, uh, Toshiya Kai, hence the name restaurant Toshi, uh, married a Spanish lady, and therefore he moved to uh, Spain to live in Spain. Um, So he basically brings uh, Japanese sensibilities to the Mediterranean kitchen. The focus is on um, seasonal ingredients, um, or in Japanese known as shun, ingredients. Uh, They're also all locally sourced products, uh, dealing mainly with vegetables and fish from the local markets. He calls it cochina natural, as in natural cuisine. Um, And he comes from Kagoshima. um, And basically, it's it's a unique creation. Um, All the plates are, I guess the closest thing would be French, but it's with a Spanish and Japanese twist. Um, and, and I asked him, um, the difference between, um, the Japanese produce and Spanish produce. He said in Spain, the produce has more chikara or, or more power. Um, whereas in Japan, there are more mizumisushi, a little bit more watery. Um, so he loves to, you know, he, because he runs a counter restaurant, he loves to entertain his clients, talk about various ingredients, compare them to Japan. And it's really a great kind of, um, for for people that are into food, into ingredients. It's a great experience sitting in front of him and listening to him talk.
2: Mm,
1: right. Wow. Valencia, 10 seats. Sounds amazing. And uh, now, finally, you're back to your hometown, New York City, and uh, you named uh, favorite restaurants. They are Nozu 17 and 69 Leonard and Kisaki and Kapo Sono. So tell us tell us all about them. Yeah, so
3: beginning with uh, Nose 17, I'm actually going there tonight. Uh, it's helmed by Chef Junichi Matsuzaki. Uh, it, it, this will be, I think, my third time visiting there. It's um, spectacular. Um, spectacular in the sense that I think it literally competes with some of the top Tokyo restaurants. It's uh, an offshoot of uh, restaurant of Sushi Nose on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, and I think they've been around for two years, maybe, I think. Um, And basically, they serve 30 courses. um, And unlike uh, your stereotypical sushi, which starts with otsumami appetizers and then some kind of a grilled fish dish and then uh, finalize at the the end, uh, uh, the sushi course, they mix and mash everything. So um, you you can start with a sushi piece and then move to otsumami, then grilled fish. And it's basically 30 courses, 30 courses. um, And it's a seasonal and also Geographic Journey of Japan. Um, And they bring in all the peak uh, ingredients from Japan. Um, It's truly impressive how in New York City, they can bring literally all of Japan at your fingertips. Um, So that's Nose 17. And I think the other one was, um, I'm sorry, what was the other one, Akiko-san? the Uh, uh,
1: 69 Leonard.
3: Oh, yes. Yeah, 69 Leonard Street. So this um, is Chef Shion Uino, which I've, I've been several times. He came from Amane. And before that, he was at the uh, famous um, Sushi Saito of of Tokyo, which uh, at one point they had three Michelin stars, but they had to give it up as no, no one could get in, basically. Uh, but he continues the Kanesaka and Sushi Saito tradition, uh, very kind of stuck to tradition in, in a very good way. Um, and he has connections with uh, local fishermen in uh, Kyushu. So he sources uh, his fish, a lot of his fish from his local town, Amakusa. Um, and, and it's really pristine quality, high-end quality. Um, and the fish you find there is very unique to his restaurant. Um, his preparation methods, it's really focused on um, tradition and preserving that tradition.
1: Mm, right. Okay. And uh, the next one, you said Takisaki. kisaki
3: Kisaki is a completely different experience. Um, It's more of a Manhattan sushi spot. Uh, There are several uh, chefs that work there, but Kisaki is more about the experience. Um, They're very playful in nature. It's relative to the two mentioned um, earlier. It's much more affordable. Um, But having said that, they don't compromise on quality. Um, and you walk in there and it's a very Manhattan vibe, more sceny. Uh, you meet very interesting people um, and, and it's more spacious and they have multiple locations and they have two locations in the Hamptons. So for people who are interested in more kind of lively, sceny, Manhattan vibe sushi and more affordable rates, uh, Kisaki would definitely be the place to go. Mm, right.
1: So these are sushi restaurants. And then finally, another Kappo, that's Kappo sano. So tell
3: us about that. Yeah, by the way, Akiko-san, um, Sono-san says he- hello. I was there uh, last week and I told him I'll be talking um, about the restaurant on your show. I'm a huge um, fan of his. So. Love- <laughs> nice. he's, uh, he's very unique, as you may know. Um, he's, a, he's a character. Basically, you walk into Kapo Sono. I think they only have eight seats. Uh, and kapo means, as you know, we discussed kapo earlier, but cut and prepare. So everything's done in front of you. Um, He has two versions of his Kapo restaurant. One is, the schedule's changed, so you need to look it up. But one is uh, what's called Koryori night. So it's small plates and it's a la carte. It's Japanese, basically Japanese tapas, all prepared in front of you. And the other nights are. The, his his I guess for lack of a better phrase, the, the more formal kapo or the kaiseki part, which is a multi-course meal um, that is highly seasonal and I think he changes the menu every month. Uh, but the great thing about Kapo Sono is it's it's a it's a very Japan experience. Um, Sono san's very involved. Um, he's kind of the center of attention. Um, and I meet a lot of interesting people there that basically the who's who of Japanese community hangs out in Kapo Sono. Um, and it's just a fun time. And if you do go, um, make sure you buy um, Sono-san and the staff uh, beers. That's how they roll. Um, and it's really about the conversation and Sono-san talking about his food, his ingredients, and his life. Um, and probably the best way to kind of uh, best comparison is it's very similar to that Netflix show um, Midnight Diner. Obviously, Midnight Diner Shinya uh, is more casual and it's, you know, 10 bucks per head per dish. Uh, this is more high end. But conceptually, it's very similar as in people come together there, they chit chat, they get to know each other. Sono-san's involved. And it's almost like you're coming back home in a sense is uh, the vibe at Couple Sono.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, Sono-san has a long time cooking um, the the place and he really is um, the character, a very warm. Um, like you feel like um, being served by him and you want to support his business. So I'm glad he's doing so well. Um, okay, so I'm going to um, list up all those uh, restaurants we discussed and then put it on the show notes. So uh, hopefully um, our listeners can go one of those, or all of them, at some point. So after visiting all those restaurants, did you see any new trends in global dining scenes?
3: Yeah, I think with cuisine, just like anything else, um, you, you notice things are globalizing. Um, some of the top restaurants in the world, um, when, when you go in their menu, it really brings together top ingredients of the world, and especially Japanese um, ingredients, On the menu, Um, so I feel like consumers are getting more and more educated about food as the world is becoming more and more globalized. As we travel more, Uh, global trade has um, you know expanded greatly. Tourism in Japan um, over the last 15 years ago, it, over the last 15 years, have, has more than doubled. And I think you can see that in, in on the menus in some of the, you know, not even just best restaurants, but, you know, a lot of good restaurants that are not necessarily expensive. And that they want to bring and fuse together various parts of the world on, on the plate and um, in, in the kitchen. Mm, Right. So
1: uh, what are your plans and resolutions for 2023 uh, related to dining or not? Uh, Whatever you would like to say.
3: As I mentioned, I'd like to go to France, Spain, Italy, and Japan. And I think in Japan, I want to do a food tour in Kyushu, especially focusing around Amakusa and Nagasaki area. That's where Chef uh, Shio Uino of 69 Leonard Street is from. Uh, I hear great things about the fish there, and I'm really excited. Uh, You get a lot of fish from Kyushu in New York. So I really want to you know, discover a little bit more, uh, the, the Kyushu fishing. So that's one. I uh, really want to travel more in France, and various parts of Italy, um, also various parts of Spain. Uh, those, you know, parts of the world has a lot to offer. And uh, one thing you notice in a lot of these restaurants, uh, some of the top sous chefs uh, are Japanese. There's always a Japanese staff in in some of these top restaurants. Uh, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the top restaurants in Spain and the world, uh, Asadori Chibari, I think his sous chef is Japanese also. And uh, from what I understand, he's opening another restaurant really close by. um, Either he worked there or he's associated with it in some shape or form, but he's basically, from what I understand, opening another one close by. So I like to discover, you know, various Japanese chefs in these uh, very uh, interesting uh, gastronomy centers of Europe. Um, and I think the reason why I, lo- I, I, I look, look, look for that or I go out and discover that is because back when I used to live in Japan for 28 years, um, across TV shows, you'd hear a lot about Spain, France, Italy, and the cuisine. Um, so a whole generation or two of, of chefs have been exposed to this, and they actually branch out, go learn, and bring it back. Some stay and, and open their own restaurants, and other come back and open their restaurants in Japan.
1: Mm, Right. And also, uh, like you mentioned, um, some sushi chefs started to come from Japan and open restaurants in New York and other big cities outside Japan, which is exciting. So we'll see what happens. And I'm sure you're going to discover a lot more in 2023. And maybe you can come back and (laughs) report back to us everything you dined in the new year.
3: That would be great, Akiko-san.
1: Okay, so uh, can you tell our listeners where they can find your online updates?
3: Yeah, um, I actually um, write about food history and food culture um, on Instagram. My handle is Tokyo Manhattan, um, and I guess it's on Facebook also because it's linked to um, Instagram, but I predominantly write about food. Um, So if you have a chance, please uh, check out and follow my uh, Instagram page, Tokyo Manhattan. Right.
1: Great. All right. So thank you for joining us today, Masud, and uh, Happy New Year.
3: Happy New Year to you too, Akiko-san. Thanks again.
1: Thank you. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for short topics guests, please contact us at japanets at Heritage Radio Network or at Japanese is a weekly program and is always available at heritagevideonetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amin Spenjan and we'll take a winter break for the next few weeks and we'll be back early in January. So thanks for listening. I'll see you in the new year and happy holidays, everyone.